Well, if you're a, a guest this morning and you found your way here and you're realizing that uh, maybe like the guy, if the Tyler's befriended in Bangkok, you don't own a Bible. Um, and we just like you to know that we have Bibles for you. They're in the booth back there on your way out today. If you'll stop by and grab one of those guys, they'll give you one. And a Bible is a right handy thing to have. So uh, if you don't own one, please, please pick one up on your way out. This is the year of treasuring the church at North Wake where we, we grow in our love for the, the bride of Christ here at North Wake. And we do that really for one, one main reason, and that's because he treasures the church so much. Our God truly loves the church. And so uh, this morning you're going to get to see that from a perspective that's quite extraordinary. And I, I hope it will be as encouraging to you as it has been for me. Last week, Carson did a really great job encouraging us that as God's people, we are loved by him the way a husband loves his bride. And it's one of the most beautiful symbols of the love of God in all of Scripture, that God loves his church, his people, the way uh, a husband loves his bride. But this morning, we want to look at that from a different perspective. What if we're not a very beautiful bride? What if we are, in fact, um, a wretched, unfaithful, cheating, kind of despicable bride? What then? Would, would God still love us if that's who we were? Um, of course, mercifully, that's not who we are, right? We would never, we would never be that kind of bride, not, not, not us. But in fact, the New Testament teaches us that there's a sense in which we are. In fact, the whole scripture is full of descriptions of the church, just not as the bride or the people of God, not as the bride that God loves, but an unfaithful bride that God loves. That language permeates the Bible from one end to the other. If you go all the way towards the back end of the Bible in James chapter 4, we hear this kind of language used to, for us when it comes to the discussion is about unanswered prayer, and it says, you do not ask, or you ask and do not receive because you wrongly spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, the, the language there is really, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So this is one of the ways that the Bible describes us pervasively, right? And I say that because I want you to know that when you read the love story that we're about to read between the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer, this is your story. This is your love story. This is how you are loved by God. And I'd like to begin our study of the book of Isaiah by letting you listen to the passage that we're going to look at today starts in chapter 1 and goes through chapter 2, verse 13. I'd like you to listen to it from the Message Bible, and there's a couple things I want to preface it with. First of all, you really are listening to the Bible. This stuff is in the Bible, okay? I'm, I'm not making this up. It's in the Bible. And secondly, it's pretty shocking. So uh, those of you who are parents and your kiddos are with you, um, they're going to learn some new words. And uh, we rate these sermons P.O., Parental Opportunity. So you're going to get a chance to do some splaining and some teaching about the Bible when you get home today. But let, if you would just prayerfully listen to this rendering of 
chapter 1 and, and the first part of chapter 2 from the Message uh, Bible, and then, and then we'll unpack it together.
is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. Really, really, it is God's good word for us. Um, I know it's not language that you would commonly hear on any given Sunday in church, but it is God's good, hard, even beautiful word for us. And uh, if you don't mind, let's, as we get ready to unpack it, let's pray just for a moment. God, be kind to us and help us get past the shocking language to the shocking love that is behind it, even for us, even, even for us. So, Lord, have mercy on us now, we pray, by your word and your spirit. Amen. So, Hosea, whom this book is named after, lived about seven or 800 years before Jesus, right? He was a prophet. A prophet is someone God speaks to, who in turn then is charged with speaking to God's people. Sometimes God gives them something more than words. He gives them kind of object lessons of their lives that they're to live out before people. It's powerful visual imagery, even, even sometimes shocking imagery. And they, they, in the Old Testament, these prophets would go to great lengths at God's instructions to communicate his message to his people in a way that would break through their hardness of heart. So um, you've got in the Old Testament things like Jeremiah walked around with a wooden oxen yoke on his shoulders in the streets of the town as he preached. Um, Isaiah walked about naked for three years. Um, Ezekiel lay on his left side for 390 days and then on his right for 40 days, all the while bound up with ropes. All of this is God's directing to shock a hard-hearted people into hearing. And this is the kind of thing he's doing with Hosea and his marriage. Um, this is no ordinary marriage, right? Verse 1 of the book of Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. All right, before, we, before we look at that shocking marriage that God asks of this prophet, um, notice that this is, there's historical details. They're names of kings. It happens in a time. It happens in a place. The point is, it happens. And this is not a parable that's made up. Okay? It's a real prophet who took a real woman to be his wife and, as we'll see, had a real family, real children. Um, at the beginning of Hosea's ministry, Israel, God's people, was at the, they were at the back end of a season of peace and prosperity, but the people were far from God. Um, they'd been described as being in a spiritual stupor, riddled with sin and idolatry. Historians describe it this way. They say, Hosea had a major concern about the worship of a, a god named Baal or Baal. An apostasy that he understood to be the reason for Israel's predicament, right? Baal was the weather god worshipped in Syria, Palestine, who had control over agriculture and fertility, rainfall and productivity. Since ancient Israel was always an agricultural society, Baal worship was of unrivaled importance. And it might have begun this way. 
He writes, something as innocuous as the placing of an image of Baal in a farmer's field. This is what their Canaanite neighbors did to increase production. It's what people did in this land, and it appeared to work. So gradually, the invisible Yahweh, the one true God, lost ground to the Baals whom the people could see and handle, whose religion was concerned with the necessities of life more than rigid moral demands. It was the Baals, many Israelites came to believe, who fostered their crops and blessed them with children. So what they did was, as we'll talk about, they didn't really stop worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. They just added Baal. They just brought him in along, alongside. But as a result, judgment was at their door at the hand of a nation called Assyria to whom they would fall in, in a matter of years. But it's into this situation with shocking clarity that God tells his prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute, right? When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking, by forsaking the Lord. And just for emphasis, uh, Professor D.A. Carson says, when the Lord first speaks to Hosea, his language is blistering. The NIV, which reads, go marry a promiscuous woman, is too tame. The Jerusalem Bible is closer to the Hebrew. Go marry a whore and get children with a whore. For the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh, their God. So, so you can imagine um, this is early in Hosea's ministry as a prophet. This might be his first message from God, right? It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. And I'm sure he's double-checking his sources and thinking, really? This is my first message from God? Go and marry a whore? Really? God, are you sure? Um, now, some have softened it in a variety of ways, one of which is to say she's not yet acting this way. She's just inclined that way and would eventually act that way. But I'm not sure that's any great consolation to Hosea, right? To be told by God, yeah, marry this girl. Yeah, the one who's going to be a prostitute. Not sure that's a great comfort to him. But this is her character, if not her vocation, even before Hosea would take her to be his bride. She's not a reformed prostitute, right? She's not a reformed uh, whore. She is, um, she is active in this practice when he is told to marry her. And so, I mean, you can imagine against the counsel of friends and family, um, in a stunning act of obedience to God, Hosea takes a prostitute named Gomer to be his bride. And he loves her. Okay? And what that means for you and me is that God loves us. Okay? He loves you. On your worst day, you are loved by God. You know, the whole purpose, as I understand it, of this Hosea Gomer story is to show us how God loves people like us, wayward, undeserving people. We're going to talk about it more. We, the, the, the best of the news is next week, but in chapter 3, we're going to get to this. It's going to say, the Lord said to Hosea, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even 
as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. And Israel had given herself to worshiping these Baals, right? the pagan Canaanite deities. In, in, in marriage lingo, Baal was their gigolo, their paramour, right? their side hustle. And Hosea's marriage to Gomer is one of those lived-out parables that God would sometimes ask of his prophets. It's graphic in imagery, freighted with meaning, and sometimes it just took something this shocking to get the message across to hard-hearted people. Hosea has entered into a marriage that mirrors God's marriage to his people. And marriage is maybe the primary language that God uses throughout Scripture, both positively and negatively, to reflect his relationship with his people. So um, this week and next, don't, don't miss this, right? Through the story of Hosea and Gomer, Yahweh is shouting to you how much he loves his undeserving people, how he loves you, and how he loves me. And Hosea, he, he's portraying God in this relationship. Um, this is how God loves. This is who God loves. He loves the undeserving, the ungrateful, the wayward, the unlovable. That's our God. And this is such very good news for people like you and me. Because Gomer, his wife, is portraying us. We are the unfaithful ones right? who trust and hope in other things alongside our God. So for us, even for us, this means we don't have to earn God's love. It comes to us undeserved, even on our worst day. And it means that when we fail Him terribly, when we choose not to love our God, He still loves us. Okay. Now having said that, and we're going to say it again more fully even next week, the love that our God loves us gomers with, right, um, isn't a love that allows him to leave us where we are. He loves way too fiercely for that, and that's what we're about to see. We're going to come back to Gomer in a little bit, but first we need to meet her children. Um, she and Jose had three little ones, boy, girl, boy. And they have the most curious names. Do not put these names on your list of children, a child's name, if you're thinking of starting a family. These names are symbols of the way God loves. And it sure, but it sure doesn't sound like that when you first hear these names. But in the context, that's exactly what's going on. Verse 3, he went to Gomer, took her, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call him Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the, in the valley of Jezreel. The firstborn is a boy. They name him Jezreel after this place, this valley and a city. And it's a place in Israel's history that's associated with warfare and bloodshed. And um, one scholar said, in the mind of an Israelite, Jezreel may have signified bloodshed in the same way that Chernobyl signified nuclear disaster to a modern person. Right? The idea seems to be 
that the same violence that happened in Jezreel is going to be brought down on Israel if they don't repent and return to their God. That's the judgment side. Now, this name actually has a positive meaning, though, kind of embedded in it, uh, more hopeful. Jezreel means, the name itself means, may God sow. And it connects God to the productivity of the land. Remember, they're farmers, right? And so we have a contrast between Yahweh, the true provider of all things, with Baal, the pagan weather god. And we have in this name, Jezreel, predictions of both violent judgment on the one hand and a prayer to God, the true giver of plentiful harvests on the other. So Jezreel is the firstborn. There's a second child born to this union. Verse 6, Gomer conceived again and she bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, to Hosea, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. No mercy is to be her name. And a Professor Dwayne Garrett writes, this name, it means not loved. It's a dreadful name to give to a little girl. It communicates rejection by her father and says that he has abandoned her to all the troubles of the world. For a culture as child-centered as Israel was, it's difficult to imagine a name more scandalous and offensive. Whenever her name was spoken, it commanded the attention of the people around and invited the question, why would anyone call his daughter that? And this startling name, No Mercy, calls attention to the estrangement between Yahweh and the people. The little girl was the text of Hosea's sermons, right? People heard that terrible name and no doubt whispered to one another, Hosea's wife is unfaithful. He must doubt that this child is his. He's rejected the poor thing. And Hosea would turn to them and respond and say something like, Are you worried about my daughter named No Mercy? I tell you, you are named No Mercy. Because Yahweh has turned his back on you. So Jezreel, no mercy, third child, another boy. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Not my people. Some have rendered that not my kin. And could Hosea be hinting that this child might not even be his, his child? In chapter 2, he's going to call these children, children of whoredom. And I think with a wife like Gomer, you just never really know. Derek Bass writes about these names, these sorrowful names. In naming his daughter, No Mercy, and his son, Not My People, key aspects of Yahweh's covenant with Israel are reversed. Because they've cheated on him and broken the covenant, the exodus will be reversed and survivors will be taken into exile. And that's exactly what came to pass. Israel did not heed the message and Assyria came in and took them captive in short order after Hosea's preaching. So he names his children Jezreel, maybe violence you could say, or no mercy, not my people. How is this prophetic naming Love. How is he loving his people through these names? And again, God loves his people too much to just let them be. The scripture that comes to mind for me is Hebrews chapter 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
You know, in love, Jesus tells stories that God pursues the wayward like a shepherd goes after that one lost sheep or a woman goes after that one lost coin. The point of these warning names is to call the people to repentance and back to faithfulness to their God. As we're going to see, this is, this is what we call tough love. Right? But God's loving intent is made clear in the next few verses. Uh, look at verse 10 of the first chapter. Yet, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel should be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So it turns what he just said on its head, right? From you are not my people to children of the living God. From, from not being his people to being multitudes of his people. They estimate, some historians do, that there were like 60,000 landowners in Israel at this point in time. If you scoop up a couple sand at the beach, you got two million grains of sand in that cup. That it's gonna, God is going to bless these people. They are his. They're, he's going to restore them. If only they will return to him. It echoes the promise God made to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. It's all going to be restored and more if they will just return, repent and return to their true husband, the true God. And that's the plea in the next verse of chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. God is pleading with his people to repent and return to him, even enlisting children, the children, right? And until she does, he's going to wield the consequences of his bride's sin to chastise her until she repents and returns. And you see this in the verses that follow. Listen as I read these verses to you, um, how God frustrates her pursuit of her sin. Right? Verse 3, lest I strip her naked. If you call her to repent, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I'll have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. 
So if you hear it in there, God is employing all kinds of strategies to frustrate her pursuit of these other lovers and make them unfruitful. He uses shame and humiliation and sorrow. In verse 3, he's going to strip her naked and make her as the day she was born. In verse 10, I'm going to uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. In verse 11, he's going to put an end to all of her mirth. He uses deprivation and dissatisfaction. Verse 3, he's going to make her like a wilderness. He's going to make her like a parched land and he's going to kill her with thirst. Verse 9, he's going to take back his grain in its time, his wine in its season, take away his wool and flax, which were to cover her nakedness. He's going to use frustration and failure. She said in verse 5, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I'll hedge up her way with thorns and I'll build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall not pursue her lovers or she shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them, shall not find them. And I'll lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And so all of these strategies that God is playing out that sound like judgment are really his, they are judgment, but they're his love. Look at verse seven. All of them have one goal in mind. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. See, everything's designed here that's playing out in, in Israel's life, in Gomer's life. The humiliation, the shame, the sorrow, the deprivation, the dissatisfaction, the frustration, the failure. It's all designed to turn her heart back towards her first husband, towards, towards her true love, her true husband, her true God. And it finds its great fulfillment in the reign and rule of one called the Messiah. He, he clues us in on this back in chapter 1, verse 11. He says, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. So the divided nation is going to come together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That one head is what the Hebrews would call the Messiah. The Greeks would call him the Christ. And we know that it was Jesus. Right? And it's, it's under his reign that all this beautiful restoration is going to happen. And he himself is the great demonstration of the love of God for the undeserving. The Apostle Paul says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, you might be wondering, does God still love his people, his wayward people like this? Does he still use consequences of sin to turn hard hearts back to him? Does he use things like jail or bankruptcy or sickness or injury or divorce or unemployment? Does he wield things like this to call us back to him? Now, these things, when they happen in a life, are not always sin-connected. They can be, though. And when they are, God wields them in our lives just like he did in Gomer's and Israel's to draw us back to his waiting embrace. More about this next week as we finish this story. See, this is the setting 
This disciplinary love of God is the setting for the great invitation to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, right? It starts this way. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Yes, God still loves his wayward people this way. He loves them too much not to. His heart breaks over our sin. The prophet Ezekiel put it in this kind of language in chapter 6. He says, those of you who escape, remember me, God says, among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. So really the question is not, does God love like this still? He does. The question is, is he loving you like this this morning? Are you pursuing a pattern of sin and finding your way barred sometimes? You, you can't get at it. You can't access her or him or it or whatever. Your way is barred. Or when you pursue your dark passions and find them, you find they don't satisfy anymore. They just frustrate. Does your lust or greed or pride seem increasingly disappointing to you these days? Could it be that your heavenly husband is loving you back to him through those disappointments? He's calling your name. He's wooing you. He's protecting you. Remember, the, the people of Israel never stopped worshiping Baal or worshiping Yahweh. They just added Baal. This brought him in. A little insurance policy, a little side thing, something tangible. Verse 11 of chapter 2 God says, I'll put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moon, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. It seems like they were still keeping Sabbath. Some of those feasts, those appointed feasts, may very well be the feasts of God's people. They're still keeping them. If we're going to update the language, you might say they're still attending church. They're still involved in study service. They're still going to small group. They went to Monday, Thursday service, and they're going to get Christmas Eve. They're still doing all the stuff. Professor Garrett, again, says they could carry on the outward duties the faith required without realizing that God had rejected them and was determined to put this pretense to an end. The tragedy is not that so many were desperately licentious, but that so many had fallen so far from God and did not know it. See, eventually, as our closing verse puts it, they simply forgot God. Verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Are you forgetting God? Is there a, 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 maybe a lesser God, we could call it, who snuck in, become your hope for satisfaction in life, the place for, where you look for peace or joy or hope when you're troubled? And they're not always bad things. They're not always these evil, dark things. That sometimes they're just misprioritized or misplaced good things. I heard one pastor put it this way once. He said, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. And so it could be really good things. It could be family. It could be work. 
It could be the weekend or the ball game or a beer. Where are you looking for peace when you're troubled and hope when you're sorrowed? Another way to say it, who's your bail? God is fiercely loyal as husbands ought to be. He allows no gigolos, no paramours, no side hustles, none. Some of you remember um, Senator John Edwards, who was a, vi a vice presidential candidate uh, a handful of years back. Uh, he was unfaithful to his wife, Elizabeth, and she writes about that sorrow. When she learned of her husband's infidelity, she says, after I cried and screamed, I went to the bathroom and I threw up. And the next day, John and I spoke. He wasn't coy, but it turned out he wasn't forthright either. I felt the ground underneath me had been pulled away. I spent months learning to live with a single incidence of infidelity, and I would like to say that a single incident is easy to overcome, but it is not. I am who I am. I am imperfect in a million ways, but I always thought I was the kind of woman, the kind of wife to whom a husband would be faithful. I had asked for fidelity, begged for it, really, when we married. I never need flowers or jewelry. I don't care about vacations or a nice car, but I need you to be faithful. Leave me if you must, but be faithful to me if you are with me. So this morning, are you being steadfastly faithful to your heavenly husband who loves you steadfastly, even on your worst day? Today, through this story of Hosea and Gomer and their children, know that your God is inviting you back because he loves you still, no matter what. And so before we close in song, I'd like you to just spend a moment in prayer, quietly right where you are, and ask God, is there anything misplaced in my heart that I am loving as I ought to love you? Okay. So I'll lead you through that time. Let's just bow right where you are, and silently let's pray and ask God that question. What wondrous love is this, God? That when we are at our worst, our most undeserving, as our passage says, our lewdness is exposed, then you love us. And so now we remember back to when that was for us. We give you thanks for loving us. But what kind of love is this that won't leave us there? That won't let us continue to be unfaithful, but puts into play great sovereign power to protect us and call us back, to win us again. So, Lord, now we think about where you might be doing that for us, where sin is empty, and where the things that are supposed to be good are not good because we're placing too much on them. Lord, bring those things to mind now. 
And as he does, just name those to him and confess them and receive his love for you. God of compassion, in Jesus Christ, you did not disdain the company of sinners, but welcomed them with love. Look upon us in mercy, we pray. Our sins are more than we can bear. Our pasts enslave us. Our misdeeds are beyond correcting. Forgive the wrongs we cannot undo. Free us from a past we cannot change. Heal what we can no longer fix. Grace our lives, our undeserving lives, with your love and turn the tears of the past into the joys of new life with you.